We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome everybody back. Steve Cunningham with Sense of Fidelity. I'm coming at you with Professor Brian McCall. Uh, you're still in Oklahoma? Yes, still Boom. teaching Oklahoma. The Boomer Sooner, if anybody's yes. a big football fan. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you for doing this. No, it's nice to speak with you. Thanks, same here, same here. Heard, heard many good things about you, and I'm looking forward to getting the book when uh, it comes back. We were talking off camera, about to get republished new edition etc long story sorry guys I, i'm rambling but anyway usury was in my head and i said who what better person to talk to than professor mccall on this so can you describe what is usury so usury is basically the charging of a profit the attempt to force someone to pay you a profit when all you merely do is loan them money for them to spend for consumption that's a sort of the most basic, simple definition. Um, it's and, and again, often with definitions, distinguishing what it's not is helpful to understand what it is. So again, what it is is the charging of a profit when you lend someone money for them to spend. And um, it, that is different from when you invest money into a business, when you provide capital to a business that's going to be used to produce things, to create productive and, and utilize productive assets and where you agree to share the profits that those produce. But when you loan money that someone's literally just gonna spend to pay medical bills, to buy a house, to buy food, then you're not creating any new wealth. And uh, usury is saying, but you're gonna charge, pay me a profit in addition to what, uh, returning what I loaned. We watch, uh, my wife and I will watch Shark Tank every so often and you see uh, like Mr. Wonderful, give me, I'll give you $200,000 for 8% back. Are we talking are we talking that exactly what that is in a nutshell? Well, again, with business investments, it's a little different. So, again, saying I will, you know, I'm going to contribute the capital, you'll contribute the ideas, and we're going to share profits in a certain way. There's nothing necessarily per se wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Now, the way you, you may take advantage and be unjust and demand, you know, disproportionate profits for your investment. So that's, I'm not saying that any terms of an investment in business are okay. But the difference is usually the church is always taught is per se wrong. Right? It doesn't matter how much profit you're charging. It's just wrong to do it. Where in the business realm, it's more a matter of, you know, of, of proportionality and justice. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, that, that it, the specific terms on a chart tank thing might be unjust if they're investing in a business. Um, but that's a different question from usury. Okay, so we're mostly like uh, credit cards charge you 15%. Yeah, I mean, there are ones, again, that, like on the other side are clear. Credit cards, chart rates are all, are just clearly uh, charging a profit, right? There's no way that, you know, charging 39% interest, annual interest rate is just paying back the cost of making the loan. Uh, if that were true, there wouldn't be so many credit card companies. So uh, 
let's look at it worldwide. Why is it causing so much of a problem in the economics today? Not only, well, it could go federal level, global level, personal level. Well, that's really interesting. And there was a, a, a Jesuit, uh, although this was a good Jesuit, it was back in the 20s and 30s, <laughs> uh, when Jesuits actually studied true principles. Or talk. <laughs> uh, Bernard Dempsey, uh, who was a, uh, a theologian, but also had a degree in business from Harvard Business School. And he wrote a book, uh, which was very instrumental in my research into this topic, called uh, Interest in Usury. And he explained that the, one of the marks of the modern economy, and he's writing in the 20s and 30s, is that usury has become institutionalized. So that up until this time, it was essentially a personal sin. You'd have a usurer who would unjustly lend uh, to someone and would commit an injustice against you know, individuals. That now it's actually been folded into every institution in which we live so that we have this institutional usury that essentially dominates the economy, not just individual transactions. And he was referring to things, for example, of fractional reserve banking, which essentially uses lending, uses lending at a, a profit as the basis of our monetary system and our, our money system. Uh, the whole movement towards making consumer borrowing the engine that drives the economy, where, as I, I, I mentioned some of my writing, you know, up until the 1930s and 40s, even in civil sort of secular culture, it was a bad thing to be in debt, right? People that were in debt, they were irresponsible. They were not upstanding citizens. Well, somewhere after the 30s, that transitioned to essentially, if you don't have a credit card, if you don't have a mortgage, oh, there's something wrong with you, right? You're not, you're not using the, you're not driving the economy. You're somehow being backward. Uh, and again, this is what he saw, that the whole system was turning to be based on usury. So that you couldn't buy a home, you couldn't go to school without being a victim of usury and feeding the system. And yeah, this was an incredible insight at the time, um, you know, that he made it, as I said, when the system was really in its earliest, uh, earliest period. Yeah, I remember hearing people say, um, uh, let's say a couple of years ago, I told somebody, yeah, I'm going to pay off my credit cards and slash them up to go. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? Huh? <laughs> But, but again, maybe to, to follow up a little more directly on sort of what's bad about it for us um, in that system. So again, a lot of people don't understand what money is because it's pretty hard to understand, right? And in 13th century, it was pretty simple, right? It was a gold coin uh -huh. uh, that been melted to the government and melted down the gold and put a seal on it. That was the government saying, this is pure gold. And we've checked this and you can rely on this is whatever, depending on the denomination, an ounce of gold. So what the government was really doing is taking something of value and being a sort of standardizer to say, now you don't have to you know, weigh the gold every time and check it and have a scientist tell you, yeah, this is real, it's not fake. We're gonna sort of do that for you. So it was a service to speed up commerce, but at the root of it was something that actually had value. Well now, and I do this when I teach payment systems to, to my students, I say to them, so what is a dollar bill? What does it represent? What is it? And they say, well, uh, it's a dollar bill. I said, well, what is it? Why, why, why does somebody accept a piece of paper with green ink on it? Uh -huh can't come up with an answer. Well, that's because there really is no answer, right? Literally, if you read the law, a dollar bill, if you have a physical dollar bill, that represents the right to turn it in and get another one of those dollar bills. Uh -huh. It actually represents nothing. It is just self-referential. And in fact, most of the money of our economy, though, is not even those dollar bills. It's computer entries in a computer account. So how this works this is really important. If you go to a bank to borrow money, so you want to take out a loan. Again, a lot of people have these 
old ideas. Well, that means the bank has like a little vault in the back where they have the money and they're going to lend it to you. No, what they actually do is they create the money that they're going to lend. They literally don't have it. They just, but, and there's a limit on how much they can do it. That's what's fractional reserve banking is. So the amount of credit that they have in a federal reserve bank, they can lend nine times that. Just, they don't have it. They can just make it up. So you take a $10,000 loan. They have to have $1,000 stored somewhere in their records, but then they just create the extra 9,000. In fact, the full 10,000, because they can't use that 1,000. And they lend it to you. And then they charge you. So they basically invent the money that they lend out of thin air, out of computer strokes, and then charge you for it. Right? <laughs> that would be like if you, know, you said, can I borrow a hammer? And I don't have a hammer. I just create an imaginary one and then say, now I'm going to charge you for using my imaginary hammer. But, but then the, what's worse is if you don't pay back this imaginary money that they just created for the sole purpose of lending to you and making a profit from you, they get to take real things from you, right? So when you don't pay them back, they come and take your house or your car that is something real of value. To, again, to repay, and that's why it's even worse than usually was, say, a thousand years ago. At least then there was something real being loaned that you returned. Here, once you pay back that loan, that money disappears. It never existed in the first place. So, I mean, that's just sort of a, a an insight when you see that that's how money is created in our economy. It's created when people borrow from banks, banks create it, and then lend it to them, and when it's repaid, it disappears. So we need to have more people borrowing or we don't have any money in our economy. Yeah, we won't get into the QE program or anything else from the creature of Jacko Island. <laughs> There's plenty of yes. that. Yes. Uh, what did the church, what did, like the popes, any councils, what did they say about usury in general? Well, the church has been very consistent throughout her history to condemn usury, again, as a something in and of itself, as against the natural and divine law. So sinful. Uh, from the very first ecumenical council of the church, the Council of Nicaea, which you know, we usually associate with its more famous acts historically of uh, dealing with Arianism, but it did actually do other things. And one of the things it did was condemn usury in no uncertain terms as always wrong. So from the first ecumenical council of the church, this is something that's been condemned. Um, so what the church has always said is that usury is, uh, is a sin to, again, charge a profit when you merely loan money that gets repaid to you. Uh, because, again, for lots of reasons, but essentially you're charging for something uh, that isn't that, that you know that, that it's not a loss of yours. So if you get paid back all your money, you didn't lose anything. Mm -hmm. um, and and then throughout history, what the church did is they then explain some of the details, the sort of little nuances that that go with that principle. So people would say, okay, well, what if somebody wants to borrow some money and to go lend it to them? I have to pay a courier to tra transport the money to them. Can I ask them to pay me back my costs of bringing the money? And the church said, okay, yeah, that's reasonable. You're not charging a profit. You're, um, you're just making up for the loss you suffered. But again, as things got more complicated, there were more kinds of losses and, and things like that that the church said, yes, that's not usury. That's a distinction. Um, but as, a, as people got cleverer trying to evade the church, they tried to come up with more and more ways of essentially hiding what they were doing. And uh, the church had to come out with more and more regulation on it. So that that developed in terms of the church explanation of what is and what is, where the line is. Um, but again, they always had a real simple test. That, that, and this one of the popes articulated this clearly. He said, look, if you would rather make the loan 
than say, you know, I wish you'd find, you know, it'd be better if you didn't have to borrow this from me. Um, then probably you're looking out to make a profit, right? If you're saying, no, I'd rather you borrow this money than me keep it, then it probably is a sign you think you're going to profit out. And it's kind of an interesting, kind of a good rule of thumb way to think about um, that developed. Then the other part of the development has been, well, what does the secular law do about usury? So how does it deal with it? What should it prohibit? How should it regulate it? And as with all sins, as St. Thomas tells us, the secular sort of civil law, the law of the, the, the country as opposed to the divine law, can't punish every instance of what's wrong. Right? So uh, just take blasphemy, for example. So, you know, the civil law can outlaw forms of blasphemy, but it doesn't necessarily make a crime every, every single instance of blasphemy, just because one, it's imprudent, it's impractical, there's no way to enforce it. It doesn't say it's right, but it just says, well, we have to draw lines where as a matter of political prudence, we're going to actually put a civil penalty on this. Well, the same thing's true of usury, right? That, that, you know, sometimes it's reasonable for the state to say, you know, there's, there's so much usury out there, we have to focus our attention on certain types, and certain types we're not going to actually make crimes and punish just because it's impractical. And again, St. Thomas says this is perfectly fine in the role of human law. He says, unlike the divine law, which leaves nothing unpunished, Human law is not omnipotent and cannot do that and has to make choices. So the church had also been involved in civil laws as they developed, sort of deciding where's that line. Again, not what's right and what's wrong, but what's the line where we're going to also make it a human crime as opposed to being wrong, and a lot of development. Now, what happened is by the 18th century, because there were a lot of people trying to evade usury, economies got complicated, um, there were lots of exceptions, uh, the Pope uh, published a, a papal bull, Vix Pervainit, which was the last official pronouncement on usury, where he said, okay, things have gotten a little bit out of control. I'm going to sort of outline some principles. And he, uh, he reinforced and sort of the last official declaration of what is, what is usury, on the terms I've said, uh, made it clear, though, there are situations that are distinct that may look like usury. And he said, in fact, the usurers have made it hard by playing with our vocabulary and sort of disguising things so his real point is you have to be careful. You can't just say, well, this is what they say they did. You have to look into it and see the substance. And again said, it's up to the civil authorities to make some of these prudential judgments. And again, that's been the last official pronouncement. It's never been, uh, which it couldn't be, changed by, by the church. Uh, but, but what has happened, I think, in modern times is, again, it's due to the complexity of the corrupt, uh, as, as uh, Father uh, uh uh, well, as actually Hiller Belloc mentioned, the money manipulators would do. They've made it so complicated that it, it has been hard as a practical matter to regulate it. The church has granted, again, even more scope to say, well, look, the civil authorities, this is a tough one. How do you fight it? And there's no sort of easy one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Mm -hmm. But it's continued to teach to this day that still, if you engage in this activity, knowing what you're doing, knowing you're charging a profit on a consumer loan, uh, that you are committing a sin. Yeah, 1745 is the last time that was proclaimed, but there's been at least the catechisms, I would say, between then and now have mentioned it, right? Oh, yes. And again, the church has clearly taught it. It was the last sort of comprehensive, uh, universal teaching of the, you know, of the extraordinary magisterium, I'd say, on, on the topic. Is it found in scripture, the condemnation oh. of it? Yes, and again, uh, throughout my book, I give a lot of instances, but it's found throughout uh, the Old Testament, uh, throughout the, the Psalms, throughout Leviticus, throughout a lot of the Old Testament. And interestingly, 
is always include one in a list that includes things like adultery, sodomy. So again, that's important because it gives you the sense of the seriousness of this, the matter of the sin. It's always listed along, you know, with with sins of that that nature. Um, and uh, it, it certainly is reaffirmed in the New Testament and is referred to throughout the Old Testament as clearly wrong. Now, as with many things in Scripture and why we need the church, there's no actual definition of it, right? The, the Scripture just says usury is wrong, and it was left to the church and tradition to explain, define, and sort of give us the sort of framework around which to understand the condemnation. Uh, and again, interestingly, the, the original Protestants uh, who broke from the, 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 the magisterium actually were very vehement in their in originally, the very first generation against usury, uh, because they found it in scripture. What happened though, as you see over the centuries, is they sort of broke from the magisterium and the definition. They sort of lost the focus and couldn't figure out how to deal with it and eventually gave up most of them and said accepted it, uh, because all they had were the biblical texts that didn't give you, you know, the details, the definitions, just gave you the principle. <laughs> kind of like everything else with Protestantism. Yes. <laughs> uh, how do we do business without usury? Uh, is there a way to do it? I mean, uh, do you have? I mean, who can lend without it? Uh, is there a moral way of doing this? So, as to business, first of all, yes. I mean, the world functioned for centuries in Christendom without it being legal. Now, again, it occurred just like every moral vice, right? There, you know, there were there were laws against divorce and against adultery, but people still broke it. So, I'm not saying that there were periods where nobody committed it. That, that's obviously wrong. But periods where it was certainly illegal and where the civil and church authority were, were together in their uh, uh, um, legislation and enforcement against it. But, um, and economies flourished. The, uh, really one of the greatest economic recoveries in history of uh, the 12th century, which economic historians, you know, talk about is when an incredible economic revival in Europe after the periods, the several hundred years of warfare and, and chaos in, in Europe, uh, certainly came out at the at really a, a height of the uh, theological, philosophical, and juristic thinking about usury. And so it was not impediment at all to that economic uh, revolution. And, and again, because the distinction between consumer lending and business investing is, is always there, it is not an impediment to true commerce or to, to business. Um, now, what about the sort of need for consumer lending because sometimes people rightly say well there may be people who just need to borrow money they're in a tight cash flow situation and they need to buy food or something of necessity well first of all the, the you know the teaching always was okay yes there may be people who have need but a payday lender is not the answer to somebody that's in a real bad situation right so somebody's lost their job and you know can't feed their family like the answer isn't let them borrow at 300% interest rate because that's really going to help them out. What a terrible thing you're doing. Yes, yes. That's obviously yes. ridiculous. What they need is some kind of assistance. Um, and in fact, this is just going to perpetuate the problem, right? If they're lending at these usurious rates, they're never going to get out of the mm-hmm. And But then secondly, the, the, there is an institution um, called the Mons Pietatis that I talk about in the book. And there's been some really good historical studies on this that flourished in the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century. And essentially what it was, was a, a what we call in our modern terms, a nonprofit charity that took donations from, from people. And their whole mission was to provide these no profit loans to people who were in, you know, difficult situations uh, to, you know, borrow the money when, um, that they needed to just pay for things. Uh, but the principles that guided it 
where number one, you could, couldn't charge a profit. They had to, uh, they could you know, charge reasonable amounts to cover expenses to make the loans. Uh, and, and at the end of the year, they have an audit. And if they actually found out they made a profit, they miscalculated, they had to return the money to the borrowers. And if they couldn't find them for some reason, they, they had to donate it back to some other charity. Secondly, there was a rule that you could only lend to people who had a reasonable chance of repaying it. I get back to my point that if it's somebody who, like, there's just no way they can pay this, this is not a way to help them. Um, and in fact, this is, this is an interesting way they focus their mind. The, the loan officer, using our modern mm -hmm. individual who worked for who made the decision, if it turned out that the person could not, was is just a loan that could never be repaid, they were reliable for the repayment of the loan themselves. Now, heard a lot about so-called predatory lenders in our economy that you know people who loaned at ex excessive rates knowing they could never get you know think about what that would happen to those if that was the rule but if you made one of those loans you had to pay for it but that was again it was a way to say are you really making this to somebody who has you know it's just a well i have a good job i could pay this back but i have an extraordinary cash need like um, and so these flourished for centuries as inst as charitable institutions that met this need. And interestingly, they only go out of existence when for-profit lending is permitted by civil authorities. And they are driven out of existence by the, the big banks that want to sort of take over this market. And they are sort of, you know, eventually, uh, there's one that still exists in Mexico City to this day, but they were basically destroyed as an institution. <laughs> Why is the church so... I want to say silent, but it's never talked about really. I mean, do you have a, well, do you have a guess? Sort of two answers. I think one, the church did become more circumspect again, as the, the complexity of the modern economy uh, came about and um, mostly for the, the reason that it was, it, it becomes a principle that as Dempsey, Father Dempsey pointed out, becomes so hard to apply because of all the manipulation going on in the economy. Uh, and again, I'll just give a real simple example to the, my principle. So again, it's always fair to ask to be and require to be repaid what you loan, right? Just like if I lend you a bottle of wine for dinner, it's reasonable to say, well, give me back when you're, you know, when you have time, buy one and replace it for mm -hmm. me. Um, but to ask for more is what's unfair. But what happens in the modern monetary situation with this phony money is you know, right now, if I lend you $100, in three years, if you pay that back, we have no idea what the same number $300 represents. But we know it doesn't represent the same value as today. Right? Again, in prior economic times, you lend me 100 florins, gold florins. Basically, if I pay you back five years from now, they represent the same value they did when you loaned them to me. So it's very easy to equate equality, to say, this, I'm paying you back what you loaned me. Well, now, again, any economist will agree, a dollar today is never worth the same thing in the future because of the manipulated system. Mm -hmm. This is an example where it's harder to apply. If you lend me $100, it doesn't mean I necessarily repay $100 to be truly just. It may be a different number to try to capture that difference. But pinpointing that difference making it is, is very difficult. So one reason for the church's circumspection is, and again, it's, it, it's it's recognizing what the sort of manipulators have done. They've made it hard to detect this this evil, and so it's hard to apply it. Which is why what the Holy Penitentiary did in the 19th century, the one that gave kind of guidance to confessors, said, "Look, you have to maintain the principle. But you have to realize in individual cases, people 
it may be hard to know what they're doing. They may not want to commit that it's wrong, but it's very hard to apply because of our manipulated money system. So they gave sort of, okay, you have to use your discretion. If they, you know, trade their best, if they use reasonable estimates, but there are bright lines, right? Clearly something like 300% or 39% of the principal is well beyond anything like inflation or any kind of capture of these complexities. But still, it's, it's not as simple as it was to apply. And so the church said, we'll have to leave it more to individual, to the internal forum, to individual confessors to sort of figure out what was going on. And so it's harder to make broader statements about what is or isn't, even though the principle is still the same. Um, that, I think, has, has certainly been um, you know, the case. But, but I think from 1960 onward, I, this is probably also just a, a convenient not liking to criticize the powers that you know control the world right now, right? It's been a period of appeasement. Uh, and so I think some of it is, you know, uh, just along with many other things that aren't talked about, other vices that aren't talked about, just, well, you know, we're just not gonna mention this anymore. So I think it's a combination of those two factors why there's just been not as much said officially. Coming to today's problems with COVID-1984 and you see these signs of the, uh, the shortage of coins and cash and things like that. I'm the one. I'm one of those that are going with. They're going for a digital currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you seeing this as well? Can you explain some of that to some of the viewers that may not know what we're even talking about on that? Oh yeah, I think there's two things we've seen for a long time, which are things sort of blunt instruments that people are trying to use to protect themselves against this system, which again is designed to transfer wealth from average people to the, the, those who control the system, right? Again, make people take loans they can't pay back, then take away their real assets from them, right? To, to repay these loans that didn't cost us anything to make because we made it up. And people, you know, again, some people are waking up to the fact that this system is designed for that. That's why there are these boom and bust cycles, right? Where, where we have these big recessions. Why? Because that's the time to call all the loans and take away the real assets and start the cycle. So two things I'm seeing that a lot of people are getting interested in is one, precious metals, right? Sort of, okay, well, look, here's something at least that has intrinsic value, that's held value through centuries. I'm going to, you know, the extent I want to store up value that I don't want to spend money right now, it's better to put it in that than in just a bank account because it, it has a greater stability. So lots of people, and even getting you know, pretty mainstream people. I was at a, a party uh, some time ago where sort of a wealth management professional, you know, in the system who said, oh yeah, I recommend at least 25% of people's investment now is in gold and silver, mm-hmm. which is a very big change from, from decades ago. Mm-hmm. And secondly, this new introduction of digital, digital alternative ways of paying. Why is that important? Because unlike this sort of manipulative system where the people who benefit from it can decide how much money people get, it, it doesn't have an intrinsic value like gold, but it has something that's more stable right, that is not open to manipulation by the lenders, that doesn't tie them together. It's sort of a, 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 and again, there may be some problems or issues with digital currencies that may develop. It's a brand new thing, right? So we, we see, you know, how it may get abused, but I think people see in it a way to get their their real economic wealth out of this manipulated system uh, into something that has a little more stability. Final thoughts. Uh, what do you see coming down next now five, 10 years, currency related wise, uh, practical ways that people can uh, protect their finances? 
or you know try to you know teach others the evils of usury in general sure so um some practical things i would say are you know number one um you know focus on again things that are real right things that are less subject to manipulation to the extent you own uh you know land you know things that have inherent value um you know if you have excess money that you know you've made you put it into things that are going to not as easily manipulated um precious metals is is a fairly good example again they're not free from manipulation we you know know over time that's happened but it's much much harder than the other system um and and try to avoid again as a victim in a sense avoid debt as much as possible right avoid credit card debt avoid the again some of it just to live we you know you may you know buy a house now but they've driven up house prices so much that unlike my grandparents generation where he as a plumber you know could buy a house for his family for cash because there was just there was prices were aligned with the economy that's just, you know, not possible for most people. So again, I'm not saying, you know, you can't have any debt because you have to live in the system, but avoid as much as possible, right? Spend within what you make at the moment, uh, particularly avoid things like credit card debt, debt that is essentially set up to keep you in a cycle of, like Hilaire Belloc would say, servitude, right? Where you can never get out from under it. Um, there are ways to sort of do what you can to, to protect yourself uh, you know, as, as, as much as you can. And I guess last closing thought, shifting gears a little bit. A lot of times people think, you know, is this really a big deal? I want to throw up one of the biggest arguments against the church's teaching on usury by even some Catholics. That's interesting. They'll say, oh, come on, look, this is just, you know, if two people agree to do this, so as long as it's consensual, as long as the bar knows what they're doing, they don't get tricked, you know, how can the church, how can anybody say this is wrong, right? It's limiting their freedom. If I want to, you know, say I'm, I want to pay you 100% interest, as long as I agree to it, how can we say it's wrong? Well, it's interesting. And that's one of the biggest you know, issues with usury is that it has come about because of that false philosophy, right? That the consent of people, people agreeing to something can make something wrong right. And that's why to me it's so important because it's tied to so many other moral issues, contraception, adultery, uh, and basically you know, uh, marital relations outside of marriage. It's the same false philosophical principle right, that they use to push all these other agendas. Well, what's wrong with it? As long as you know, two private people agree to do with it, the church and the state should get out of it. It's the same false principle used in all of these. And, and interesting, I'll tell one last quick story. Um, one of the things that actually got me interested in this topic was I was reading an old article in the Dublin Review that um, the late Michael Davies, the English writer, mm -hmm. uh, uh, when he passed away, his wife gave me a lot of the books from his library. And I was just sort of going through them. And he had in there, interesting, this old Dublin Review from 1964, uh, which is a sort of academic uh, journal. And I started looking through it and I wonder why he had this. And I found he had marked a story. And it was an article by Judge John T. Noonan, arguing why the church should permit the use of contraception between consenting married adults. Mm -hmm. And his whole argument was, well, the church was wrong on usury that for centuries, and even up till now, the church has said usury is wrong, but they should have, and I'm summarizing, but should have realized, well, as long as the people make it right. Since, since that's right, he then says, here's the next logical conclusion. So even if you're sort of, ah, oh, all this economic stuff, I, I don't get it. I'm a little, I'll take your word for it. There's actually something deeper than you know money involved here. It's the same flawed principle. 
that there's not objective right and wrong as to many things and things that involve our individual actions. If we, if we consent to them or somebody consents to let us do it, that somehow that can make something wrong right is a pervasive problem that usually is really just the pervasion of it. It's just a manifestation of. So it's, it's important at the philosophical, the sort of the idea of principles, even beyond the sort of bad effects it has. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's... <laughs> Wow! Yeah, <laughs> shows you that one thing that is everything's all tied together. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. One of the things I say a lot I, on the, the weekly newscast I do over at Catholic Family News is mm-hmm. one of Pope Francis's favorite slogans from the Amazon Synod was, "It's all connected. Everything's connected." And of course, he meant something very different by a very sort of environmentalist weird yes. stuff. But I, I quote all the time of like, "He's right. He doesn't realize it, but he's right." All of these errors are connected, <laughs> uh, and they all influence one another. Well, I got two of your uh, websites that were in the email. I'll link them underneath the video. But uh, yes, the Catholic Family News uh, videos, news reports you do once a week. Yes, on usually released on Friday or Saturday morning, and, and you can access them at CatholicFamilyNews.com. We post a link there, or right on our YouTube channel. Yes, you and uh, Matt Gaspers, right? Yes, that's right. Well, Professor, thank you for your time. Appreciate it very much. Great. Thank you. It was good chatting with you. Same here. Thank you. Take care.